Hey, good morning. Welcome to news from the drug war front on this very, very cold Canberra day. Yeah, well, it told me it was like, oh. I don't know, minus one when I woke up, but it was probably barely above yeah, zero. I think they were being a bit generous when they said minus one, darling. But it's, it was cold. <laughs> and not, still not warm. The sun is out, but don't let it fool you, my darlings. It is cold out there. Not too bad in the stereo, in the studio. Okay, my name's Jeff. My co-presenter, of course, is Marion. And this is uh, news from the drug war front, uh, brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harmonisation and Advocacy. Um, And connections. And the connection for uh, First First Nations Nations clients. Yep. Uh, Regular listeners will know um, the philosophy of uh, Karma, which is to... um, Treat drug users as uh, normal human beings. Because drug use is a fact, as we know. Yeah, it has been ever since we came out of the caves. Um, it's not a recent phenomenon. The uh, war on people who use drugs is a recent phenomenon. That's um, right. Well, more recent, 60 years or so. We actually have a story about even yet more prohibition-type laws, this time on vaping, which... Um, which is, a, you know, straight out jump from permission to no permission and that's just crazy some of the that law that they're thinking about in the ACT just looks crazy doesn't it well a $32,000 fine potentially and a jail term for vaping that's crazy Look, I always saw um, vaping if you know you bought quality uh, equipment and proper you know uh, you know stuff to put in it as a harm reduction tool to help you well and Jeffrey the it's also one of the means of um, using uh, THC oil, one of the ways yeah. of consuming. Now, you can eat it, but it's slow to come on, mm-hmm. yeah? But if you can take it through your lungs, it's a little bit quicker to get into your bloodstream. It doesn't matter what you do, however you use, what kind of drug you use. If you're going to smoke something, it's going to harm your lungs, right? There's pros and cons with There's always going to be pros and cons of every kind of drug that you use, any kind of consumption of drugs. It's a balance, a balancing act, yeah? It's it's about making choices. Do you want to feel better in one way at the harm of another thing? By the way, good morning, Linda. I meant to do a shout out to you. Oh, good. Sorry. (laughs) But I mean, I just think, you know, I really get very cranky about these don't do it laws, these absolute abstinence based laws, because they don't make sense. The minute you say don't do it, it romanticizes it. People want to know why they're doing it. Why are you saying don't do it? What's so good about it? Other <laughs> and in fact, it was used to substitute for cigarettes, yeah, and can also be used for using t- you know, putting t- THC oil or THC products in. So, there are just I just think that we need to think seriously about when we're bringing in new laws. Why are we bringing in new laws? And if we live in a free country, why can't we trust people to have the responsibility with proper education and, you know, taxation? Let's educate, yes. Educate and discuss. Don't just slam a law down and say, don't do it. Just say no or drugs are bad. Never been an operational thing, never been a sensible way to approach It doesn't work with human beings. Like you said, youngsters, it just opens their intrigue and, and. it, it assumes that everybody is an idiot and that they don't think and that the only people who have any knowledge or any um, understanding of drug use or of 
your or my personal proclivities, if you like, or way of life, or where you've been, yep. or your, and and therefore they make decisions on your behalf because they can. Mm, very intrusive, and yeah. it's just not wrong. Somebody just sent me a text. I should have turned that off. Oh, good. Just one that I noted. Oh, great. Oh, I know. <laughs> Linda just got her shout out. Oh, excellent. thank you, sweetheart. It's really nice of you. I should have turned my sound down. I actually have a <laughs> shout out from David to play a track by the Travelling Wilburys, which I'll get to. Oh, yes, we will do too. So uh, we've had a few um, people putting in requests and shout outs and stuff. So that's really that's good. really nice to hear. Yeah. Do we want to um, maybe quickly go do a karma, what karma's doing for the next yeah, week? Just yeah, just the outreach stuff, I think, for the week. Okay. Um, it's really cold at the moment, but look, karma from the 10th until, so just for the extent of this week, the 10th to the 12th, there's the Oaks Estate Community Barbecue from 11.30 to 2 o'clock um, in Oaks Estate, obviously. The Karma Clinic at uh, 1754 Benjamin Way, Belconna. That's on 6253. Um, 3643 3643, I usually know that off by heart And that's on Thursdays That's on May the 11th From 10am to 2pm Yeah, it's good the that the teach- clinic's back on That's Yes Because a doctor and a nurse available without appointment Is a very valuable And you can get COVID vaccinations And boosters, methadone, buprenorphine Buvital treatment, blood tests Mental health care plans Support letters Stuff like that. So, again, it's worth coming into Karma to find out. And they've actually been some, some good stats on that too, by the way. Um, Reach, Teach, Treat, Thrive, the Hepatitis Testing Clinic, Karma Drop-In Centre, that's in Benjamin Waybell Conan. Finger prick test, just to find out what kind of hep C you have, if you ha- are hep C positive, and to kind of find out... Um, and to, yeah, to find a, meet up with a peer support worker. The Angley Village Community Barbecue is at 23 Quick Street, Canberra. That's on May the 11th and May the 12th. Uh, hepatitis Testing Clinic, I did that one. Oh, that's on again. Again, okay. There's two of them. Drop-in clinic, yep. Yep, there's one on 11th and one on the 12th. Fingerprint test, so that's non-invasive. It's just to get your blood tested again, as I said before. Clear your hep C. That's just really important. People have been finding that the new, um, the thrive, they really do thrive under this new treatment regime. It's Well, it's not new. We've been talking about it on the radio show for a long time, but it really is new to hepatitis treatment yeah. compared with what we used. And Veterans Park Community Barbecue on Friday the 12th of May from 11.30am till 12pm. Yeah, it's a nice little spot there across the road from the early morning centre. Well, yeah, it gets, them more, gets most of the sun too yes. because it's not blocked off. It's a nice little spot and it's yeah. really great of directions to... Um, Provide doctors, nurses, and you know, Karma does the barbecue. Um, you know, at the same similar times. Yeah. Look, I think the nice thing about this is that Karma is being accepted and being part of the alcohol, the overall alcohol and drug um, service delivery. In that, we now have a. Um, a, a, a go to woe, if you like. So for current users and people who want to give up, we have services available for people who require whatever they require. Yeah. yeah. And we're partnering. We're there for what you got, for pa- what you need. We're partnering with all sorts of other organisations. And that's really healthy. Really helpful. Yep. All right. 
um, the news from the drug war front report um, draws on news stories that are relevant to illicit drug users from Australia and also around the world. Many of the articles that uh, we feature in the program come from uh, the mainstream media. Uh, the contents of this broadcast, uh, and tomorrow it'll be a podcast, do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Karma and the Connection. Karma does not condone nor condemn drug use, and we do not promote illegal activity. However, we do recognise drug use happens and will continue to happen regardless of laws and United Nations conventions. As such, Karma focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy and community development. We seek to reduce the harms associated with drug use and its criminalisation through the provision of programs that foster community development and the delivery of person-centred holistic healthcare. So we act in the way that the person wants. We don't say... You have to stop. That's right. Or, no, yeah. We don't judge and don't say you have to give up. We just say, what do you need? Exactly. It's non-judgmental. Yeah. Uh, Karma advocates for equity of health service delivery for all people, which, uh, as I say, every week it seems uh, not unreasonable. <laughs> well, you would think not. Oh, you would think not. Listen, I'm going to play this uh, Peter Tosh legal it just because so many times I've brought this CD in only to and find the it. CD isn't there. Oh, really? Well, I must have two copies. How frustrating. I saw it again and I thought, oh, this is empty. And I thought, I'll just have a look. And you opened it and there it was. There it was. So, Peter Tosh. God said. Legalise Tosh it. Tosh play. Yeah, it's still just as valid as the day you put it out. So you got to live a life. 
It's uh, 13 minutes to 11. You're listening to News from the Drug War Front with Jeff and Marion in Studio One of 2XX People Powered Radio, 98.3 FM. And that, at long last, was Peter Tosh and Legalise It. <laughs> as true as the day he put it out. Indeed. All right, we mentioned at the top of the show about this uh, big, uh, I would say, controversy, if not stupidity, uh, new vaping laws in Australia. And we've got a collection of information. The first is a, a Twitter uh, post by Dr. Colin Mendelson. Uh, he said in Australia there are currently 1,963 out of 104,000 doctors approved to write uh, nicotine prescriptions. Only 508 are publicly listed and there are 1.3 million Australians who are vapors. Um, and there's a you know, connection to a website for all those details uh, if you want to. Now, the Health Minister, Mark Butler, um, has come out with this new law, thinking uh, that uh, just banning something again will work like uh, prohibition has worked so well in the last 60 years, Marion. Just <laughs> I mean, crazy, isn't it? Why is it going to work on this when it hasn't worked on anything else? It hasn't worked else? on anything else. I don't know. I don't. I think it's maybe the, the one thing that people think they can do, right? If government can, what can the government do? Make a law. That's all they can do. They can... It takes five years to get, and I've said this before, Jeffrey, on the show, it takes five years to get rid of a minimum to get rid of a law. That might be a lie, but I might be just it, to make process, it up. It's a process, yeah. But you can construct a, a new law at the click of your fingers pretty well. So it's very, much easier to ban something than it is to make something available. Well, th- this has certainly um, come out of... Uh, well, pretty much... Uh, the blue. Yeah, out of the blue, because yeah. there's... Um, I got uh, given a letter, 
dating 16th of January from our peak body, the Australian Alcohol and Other Drugs Council, which wrote a submission um, about the proposed reform to nicotine vaping products and um, basically warning not to bring in, you know, harsh laws. Which would have been ignored roundly, I should think, because it was totally contrary to what the government wanted to do. And it's not that we don't like the government for crying out loud. It's just that governments tend to do stuff they want to do despite the any advice to the contrary. Well, it's a big uh, media story. You know, no, it's getting... absolutely. It's huge. Jeffrey, we've got about 12 pages oh, worth of stories on it. There's yeah? all sorts of stuff. Anyway, and, you're going to... Anyway, yeah, it says, uh, as at 28th of April 2023, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, or TGA, has approved 1,963 authorised prescriber applications for unapproved nicotine vaping products. Uh, there's a table below that includes the names of those authorised prescribers who have consented to having their names and consulting location published by the uh, TGA. There are additional authorised prescribers who have not consented to having their name published. So even that is a mess. Yeah. Uh, this list should not be taken to be an endorsement of the particular prescribers listed, nor promotion of the supply of unapproved nicotine vaping products. Doctors included on the list are under no obligation to provide you with a prescription for nicotine vaping products. So you go to the but list. they're not allowed to, but that doesn't Find someone you buy, you yeah. turn up, they don't like the look of you, and they say... Absolutely. If no. you look like you yeah. shouldn't be smoking, you're not going to give it to you. Next, please. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, very clever, yeah. Uh, the decision to prescribe any medicine, including nicotine vaping products, is a decision made at the discretion of the individual doctor, having considered the risks and benefits in your personal circumstances. And your capacity to talk your doctor into prescribing it for mm. you. Vaping in Australia. Okay, key statistics, all age groups. Dot point, those using e-cigarettes are three times more likely to smoke combustible tobacco than those who have not used e-cigarettes. They probably started off smoking tobacco and graduated to e-cigarettes, okay? Former smokers who use e-cigarettes are more likely to relapse to current smokers, are they? Between 2016-2019, the proportion of people who had ever used e-cigarettes rose from 9% to 11%. Of those who had tried e-cigarettes, 18% used them at least monthly compared to 10% in 2016 and 9% used them daily compared to 6% in 2016. In 2019, 3% of current cigarette smokers also used e-cigarettes daily and 8% of current smokers used e-cigarettes at least monthly. I've never used them, Geoffrey. Never used an e-cigarette? Never used You're just a, nor- a normal smoker. In I, no, that's com- not true. No? I tried it once, and it, but it was... For the taste, somebody okay. wanted. I didn't inhale, of course, but the um, I just wanted to taste it. Oh, okay, just and it was a flavoured, strawberry flavoured or something, and it was really doesn't sound very appealing, doesn't it? It no. wasn't what I, you know. I mean, I'm a cigarette smoker, and I'm sorry, mm. I don't want to advertise that. Either, no, but, but you know, that's I mean, I, your thing. Yeah. The truth is the truth. Yeah. Um, young people, eighteen to twenty-four years of age, of those aged. 18 to 24, nearly two in three, that's 64% current smokers and one in, or are current smokers, and one in five or 20% non-smokers reported having tried e-cigarettes compared to 49% and 13.6% in 2016. So it's been going up. 
it has been increasing. Of young adults 18 to 24 who tried e-cigarettes, the majority, 74 cents, said they did so out of curiosity. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that why everybody tries anything? Is Absolutely. to find out what all the fuss is about? Well, you see your friends at school doing it. It looks yeah, cool. And, and isn't that what we've been saying about all drugs, Jeffrey? We have. Lots of people try things and chuck them away. Yeah. You know, some people... And this is true for most drugs, right? People try something, they like it or they don't like it, and they throw it away out of a choice, not because they don't like it. They just don't want to be doing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's I know people who have used heroin mm. who liked it so much that they stopped doing it. Yeah, so And it's, a, it's just, yeah. you know. That's human beings. The whole, yeah, they Entitled to make a choice, not have the government do that. Adolescents 12 to 17 years of age, this gets a bit worrisome. In Australia, around 14% of 12 to 17-year-olds have ever tried an e-cigarette, with around 32% of these students having used one in the past month. Students who had vaped, vaped most commonly reported getting it la- um, the last e-cigarette they had used from friends at 63%, siblings 8%, or parents 7%. Around 12% of students report buying an e-cigarette themselves. What are Australian health organisations saying? Several key Australian health organisations, such as Australian Medical Association, the AMA, Cancer Council of Australia and the Australian Council on Smoking and Health, that's ACOSH, have published positions on e-cigarettes sharing the following messages. Dot points. There's insufficient evidence to promote the use of e-cigarettes for smoking cessation, increasing evidence of health harms. E-cigarettes may normalise the act of smoking and attract young people. E-cigarettes should be properly regulated. Well, here's the kicker. The legal status of vaping in Australia. Uh, From Friday 1st of October 2021, all nicotine vaping products, including nicotine e-cigarettes, pods and liquid nicotine, could only be purchased with a doctor's prescription. This includes both in Australia and overseas, and this can be done by filling the prescription at a pharmacy or importing from overseas websites using the personal importation scheme. Nicotine vaping products can be legally used by the person named on the prescription. They cannot be legally supplied to friends or family members in Australia or overseas. And there's a list of states, and I'll just mention... um, the uh, ACT devices may be sold without nicotine no promotion allowed for e-cigarettes no advertising inside the store or public. Well with these changes here's the kicker, this is from another um, site by Lizzie Weymouth, 8th of May, Canberrans could be fined up to $32,000 for possession of e-cigarettes. This is crazy. In what has been hailed as the most significant smoking reform in decades The federal government announced a ban on single-use disposable vapes on Tuesday, the 2nd of May, this last week. Plans to work with state and territory authorities to end the sale of e-cigarettes in retail settings and stamp out the black market in illegal vaping. How do you stamp out a black market? Good luck. That's why you get a black market. It's because you stamp out a legal market. In the ACT, which has the second harshest penalties for possession of nicotine vapes, this could mean a maximum fine of $32,000 or a jail sentence of two years or both for possession of non-prescription e-cigarettes. That's just mind-blowing to me. That's crazy. The finer details of the ban and how it will be carried out in the territory level 
at the territory level have not been determined, but these high penalties will likely be reserved for businesses found to be importing large quantities of non-prescription nicotine liquid. While the legal retail sale of nicotine vapes has been illegal in Australia since 2021, non-nicotine vapes are still widely available in convenience stores and other retailers. And illegal importing has caused the black market to thrive. Under the new legislation, only prescription e-cigarettes can be imported. Vapes will also require pharmaceutical-like packaging, reduced nicotine volumes and restricted flavours and colours. Nicotine vapes, which are classified as Schedule 4 medication, carry a higher penalty for possession than illicit source substances such as heroin. Oh, that's good. Methamphetamines and cannabis. In six Australian jurisdictions, in the ACT, the maximum penalty is up to uh, $1,110 or two years prison through new laws that will come into effect in October this year. So, again, yeah, the ACT up to $32,000 fine or two years prison or both. Um, That's for unauthorised Schedule 4 medicine possession. Yep, and penalties for personal uh, use or illicit drug possession, again, up to $1,110 or two years prison, $150 fine for under 50 grams cannabis possession, other diversion provisions available at police and court discretion. Uh, new laws come into effect in October 2023. Anyway, the, the, the scale and scope and severity of the punishments have certainly been a shock to a lot of people, including a lot of um, experts in harm reduction who have been supportive of regulated uh, vaping, products, vaping products as but a harm not reduction. stamping them out. Well, not, not taking a big hammer to it. It doesn't make sense. Jeffrey. that's the stuff that we've been talking about for the last, well, five, six years that I've been on the show. Yeah. But not stamping out doesn't, doesn't help. That yeah. kind of legislation doesn't help. It harms... Harm reduction is the name of the game. Well, except for the ACT health spokesperson who said the government supports stronger action to reduce the use of vapes and will work closely with the Commonwealth to identify how the implementation of proposed national changes can be supported in the ACT. This will include identifying changes that may be required to ACT legislation and aligning complementary public communication campaigns. So we're going to spend money advertising the harsher penalties um, and, I guess, telling kids it's a bad thing, don't do it. Um, However, while I noted that the legislation currently in place has a maximum court-imposed penalty of 32,000 fine, two years in prison or both, this high penalty is likely to be imposed on importers or sellers of large quantities of illegal vote rather than individuals. I just think um, it's still they've gone too far, too fast. Too far, too fast, and um, no thought for what people are actually doing. I don't think yeah? they've thought through the consequences, or I don't think so no, either. Just a nice and might find, headline, as my son used to say, "Look yeah. out for the consequences." Look out for the consequences. I'll get you. We'll go to the news, and then we shall return. Okay, look, I'm going to play this song that's been requested by regular listener David. It's uh, the band The Travelling Wilburys, and the song is uh, Tweeter and the Monkey Man, The Travelling Wilburys. Cocaine hash To an undercover cop Who had a 
That was a good song. That wasn't a bad song. Ten minutes after 11, the Travelling Wilburys and Tweeter and the Monkey Man. And thanks to David for uh, being a regular listener and requesting the song. Yep. Okay, uh, just to give some context to this um, story about the Greens trying to push the Victorian government uh, for greater access to safe injecting rooms, um, there's an article from The Guardian, May the 7th, saying that uh, during the lockdown period, there was uh, an overdose of... Um, her- Surge in Melbourne. Mm. ...of heroin overdose there uh, as health, service, health services struggled to cope. Um, and it said Victoria's uh, Victorian capital CBD recorded the most fatal heroin overdoses in the country between 2020 and 2022. Now, this goes on to a piece written um, in theguardian.com, Victorian Greens to push for greater access to safe injecting rooms with a change to the... Which uh, was actually earlier than the overdose. So that was article. May the 1st and the overdose was May the 7th. So, But it's it relevant. relevant. It, it gives some context to the yeah. need for some laws to toughen up or increase the number of safe injecting rooms in Melbourne. It says exclusive. Proposed amendment would make North Richmond facility permanent and widen eligibility criteria. The Victorian Greens will introduce changes to a government bill in a push to make it easier to open more safe injecting rooms and allow greater access for, quote, the most vulnerable and marginalised of drug users. The government's Drugs, Poisons and Controlled Substances Amendment, Medically Supervised Injecting Centre, Bill of 2023, which will make the current facility in North Richmond permanent, will be debated and voted on in the Upper House when Parliament resumes uh, next week. A trial at the North Richmond facility has saved an estimated 63 lives and safely managed uh, 6,000 overdoses since it opened in 2018. The Greens say that the amendments to the bill are based on the recommendations of an independent review into the facility by the public health researcher, John Ryan, which the government relied on when making its decision to make it permanent. They include changing the wording to allow for more than one medically supervised injecting room to be licensed at the same time. Good. Yeah, that makes sensible. It does make sense, doesn't it? Yeah. The Greens Upper House MP, Ave Puglielli, pointed to a long-awaited report of the former police commissioner, Ken Lay, due to be released next month, into the possible location for a second facility in Melbourne's central business district, and said the amendments could prevent the government stalling on the opening of another facility. And it well, does seem to drag the building, on. don't we, really? What was that? We know they bought the building. They bought the building, yeah, but, so but the legislation to actually get it open mm. and, and, you know, fit it out seemed to be dragging on. Uh, the Greens Upper House MP is quoted saying, we're very concerned that if we don't take this opportunity now with this legislation to get safe injecting right in Victoria, then we'll see the government walk away from future rooms in our state, Puglielli said. The Greens are also seeking to adjust the eligibility criteria for using the North Richmond safe injecting room, which currently locks out pregnant women, Gee, oh, I didn't know no. that, people under the age of 18 and those subject to court orders. People who need assistance in assistance with injecting drugs would also be granted access to the facility under the change. The Ryan Review, as well as a 2020 review chaired by Professor Margaret Hamilton... Who used to be one of the leading harm reduction advocates in Australia, in the country. I might add. Yes, yeah, I remember. She's a really smart woman. Meeting her at one of the early conferences in Melbourne. Yeah, Absolutely. Long time yeah, ago. Smart woman. Um, recommended expanding eligibility criteria, but the government has emphatically ruled this out. Huh. 
The Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association's Executive Officer, Sam Biondo, said those currently excluded from using the North Richmond facility were some of the most vulnerable and marginalised individuals in the community. That's a direct quote. Quote, again, for the life of me, I can't understand why they want to place people at high danger. Through denying these genuinely isolated, marginalised individuals that's access, we're actually losing the opportunity to refer them to other support, he said. He went on, whether that's treatment, housing, mental health, dental, it's all the things that make a positive difference to their life and we could find a pivot point for them through that service. Biondo said people exiting the criminal justice system were also particularly at risk of overdose. It's something that's always mentioned in the training, the naloxone training that uh, David from Karma does. Quote that, Biondo goes on to say, their tolerance level is low, there's the shock to their system of venturing back into the community and the potential to use in quantities they were using previously before they went to jail, which would be sufficient to kill them, he said. In 2021, a Victorian coroner recommended the government overhaul the way it supports people who use drugs when they are in prison after their release, following the 2014 overdose death of a man a day after he left the prison system. The coroner said that in the year the man died, there were 220 heroin-involved overdose deaths recorded in Victoria. Of these, more than 40% had spent time in prison and 10 died within seven days of release. Meanwhile, the opposition and Liberal Dem Democrats, the LDP, are also seeking changes to the bill. The LDP wants the facility to be able to prescribe the, the opioid hydromorphone or dilaudid to drug users who haven't had success with existing treatments such as methadone. Yeah, here, here. The opposition, meanwhile, wants to ensure safe injecting rooms are located at least 250 metres, excuse me, from any education or care services. Follows complaints by some community members that the North Richmond facility is currently located next door to a primary school. The Coalition's amendments would also seek to boost transparency by requiring regularly external reviews every four years and the release of annual reports. The opposition also expects to use the question time in Parliament that was last week to grill the government after the release of an anti-corruption watchdog investigation during the Easter break. So the investigation into a $1.4 million grant awarded to a union dubbed Operation Daintree cleared Andrews and his ministers of corruption but criticised the, quote, increasing influence, end quote, of advisers and the centralisation of power in the Premier's office. Well, the upshot of that is let's hope the Greens can influence that bill. And let's hope they get it going. And yeah. We, you know, the, just that data from the overdoses from 20... 20 to 2022 in Victoria, pretty horrendous. There was actually a thing on the phone during the news, oh, on the phone, on the uh, national news when you were having your cigarette saying that the Andrews government had come to a, um, a sort of an agreement with the people in the public uh, housing towers that were, you know, under strict lockdown yep. during the pandemic. And um, I think it was a $5 million settlement, which doesn't seem a huge amount amongst all the people who would have been affected, but at least it's recognised that they weren't treated particularly well. And um, that Yeah. So. Well, that's nice to hear. Yeah. All right, I think we'll do this piece from Brazil, which um, 
seems okay. a bit different. It's um, by Luana Malhiro, How Women Self-Organise, The Birth of Street and Anti-Prohibition Feminism. Talking Drugs has partnered with her, she's an anthropologist and drug researcher from Brazil, to bring to life her insights from her extensive research with women who are homeless and use crack in Brazil. This um, work at the margins of society is incredibly important to highlight, particularly because it was built alongside this drug-using population. It's the second part of her reflections on her work, exploring how she worked with her street partners to enhance their self-organisation and critical consciousness. She's quoted as saying, Nowadays I don't lose any sleep. I'm not afraid of sleeping anymore. It was the constant fear of laying your head down to sleep and not knowing if you'd wake up. Using crack on the street is surviving the street adrenaline because the street is an adrenaline. If you don't know how to live in the streets, if you don't know its limits, you'll lose yourself in them. Nowadays, I see it and say, there's a bunch of young girls that I know have been living here for a short while. They're all terrified. We could get together and teach them how to protect themselves. And we had people teach us. They should have had them too, no? What do you think? That's uh, Luanda. What is the responsibility of those who do in-field ethnographic studies? Should you only return to the field at the end of the investigation? How do you deal with the ethical implications? And how do you conduct studies in a place where there's constant abuses of rights? Those and many other issues are part and parcel of what it means to use activism as both a method of investigation and a motivation to get back into the field. The quote above is from a conversation with three partners who told of the hardships of learning from pain, trauma and rights abuses. Noticing their shared struggles, Luanda proposes to break this cycle to constitute a safe space where women on the street can learn in a loving way uh, how, to protect, how to protect themselves. In my book, I discuss the limitations of traditional and extractive research methods that have researchers inserting themselves in places without establishing any agreement with the studied population. Good and that point. happens a lot here, doesn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, absolutely. How many researchers have contacted, you know, Aval or Karma or In Newer? the first place before they do the research. Can we get 50 of your, uh, your yeah, re regular clients? Yeah, yeah. Give them nothing. Yeah. Get in, extract information from them and then write a book about it. Absolutely. Which Must. is their lived experience and yep. their valuable information. Yep. But it's not seen as such by no. many researchers and um, that's that's a real Especially problem. Especially when they, you think of the amount of money that they're spending on maintaining their habits, yeah? Or their lifestyle or well, their living condition or living on the streets and they haven't got any means of support. They're at yeah? the bottom, they're at the margins of society. That's you, right. You know, and they should be compensated properly. One of the reasons why karma is successful, Jeffrey, is because it deals with people where they are, yeah. not where society wants them to be. I agree. Uh, research should be allied with activism, helping um, capacitate the study populations with a chance to self-organise to resist the many situations of violence and violation of their rights that they must face. In this way, we redefine the production of scientific knowledge, placing the researcher as an active member of the population, working together to find answers rather than just extract them. Hear, hear. And ethnogra ethnography should not only present or des describe a studied environment, it can also be a means for collective social transformation. That's excellent stuff. No, I think it's a great quote. Um, one of the things that's really important about this is the idea of community development, Jeffrey. Yeah, community development means a community is developed and it still exists even the, after the person who has instituted the process is has left. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's still there because that's the community. You're not the community. You're just the yeah the vehicle. 
Okay, the article goes on. The last chapter of the book is dedicated to the presentation of this envisioned approach, approach to research. It focuses on my experience as a political organiser, both in helping establish a feminist collective with the women who use crack, as well as helping build alliances with local organisations. Self-organisation became the best method to reclaim their rights and to protect against the various violence their members had suffered. After Luanda raised the question above with me, I spoke to Maria Luia, uh, Maria Lucia Pereira, the founder of Street Life Movement. In our meeting, Maria Lucia made the headquarters of the movement available for the women to meet and organise. She too was looking for women who lived on the street who would join their cause. Parallel to these events, the National Network of Anti-Prohibition Feminists, RENFA, was born. They were a collective of women who used drugs who would gather to combat the damage that drug prohibition had wrought upon their lives. As a founding member of RENFA, I was responsible for organising... This is I, not, not me, but the person writing the article, was responsible for organising a local collective of women who used drugs. I spoke with the other women from the streets and with Maria Lucia, and we embarked on this joint venture... In one of our meetings, Maria Lucia encouraged us to interface with the anti-prohibition feminism with what she called the street-found feminism. This was feminism of survival, a type of feminism that manifests itself in the daily practice of looking out for yourself and your partner on the street. It's the street-found feminism, the one that no one ever sees, that exists in the little gestures of solidarity between women. Maria Lucia would say. In its end, the book narrates these final moments of research. The meeting in the street life movement's headquarters, meeting other women on the streets and the process of building the group's critical consciousness. Through support from a university, we were able to raise awareness of their organising efforts and develop their knowledge needed or develop the knowledge needed to achieve the group's aims. One of the outputs produced was to uh, a project supported by Renfa that brought financial support for four of the women who use crack on the street to become outreach workers. That would be peer education, I would suspect. Until then, they had entirely depended on money from drug sales to survive. The project's end coincided with Renfa's first national meeting in the city of Recife, per, uh, Pernambuco, where the research partners had their first experience of participating in a social movement. This is quite an exciting project, it's a, isn't it? It's, it's actually, it's fundamental, Geoffrey. So this self-organisation of peer education and paying peers to educate street-based women who are, of their peers, yeah? Yeah. Drug-using women, teaching other drug-using women. And women, as we've said before, are often the most victimised by prohibition. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. It's fabulous. This project entitled Women and Drugs, Nothing About Us Without Us, which is something that we've heard everywhere around the world, allowed us to create safer spaces for knowledge production and political empowerment. 
The latter part of society, the project was to help these people properly formulate the experiences that they faced in society, particularly as drug users. When racism as a technology of power and subjugation is compounded with sexism and drug prohibition, injustices are created that endlessly play out in the lives of these women, and that would be echoed around the world, I suspect. Understanding this proved to be essential to liberate these women of the burden of guilt that they carried on their shoulders, a guilt triggered by their status as people who use crack. Removing the alienating and stigmatising features of drug prohibition from the lives was one of the primary goals of their political empowerment. The book provides some ideas on how to democratically build a drug policy system, one that can pierce the traumatic experiences faced by individuals, as well as break the cycles of social, racial and gender-based injustices. The key to the puzzle lies in investing in the activism of people who use drugs so that they may build a new framework for the elaboration of public policies that relate to drug use. Through the lives, stories, struggles, pains and projects of women who use crack, the book aims to break their enforced silence imposed by the stigmatising and dehumanising stereotypes they face. One more paragraph. By organising alongside my research partners, we built a strong case that influenced the feminist agenda around drugs. Within it, we inserted the right to motherhood for women who use drugs, their right to life and the management of pleasures, to their protection from various types of violence they have suffered. What That's an excellent article, piece. That's a Jeffrey. That yeah. is really stimulating. Especially coming from Brazil, but there's so much favela violence and abuse of women. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I hope people enjoyed that. Uh, Marion's picked this song from a, a collection of songs by The Who, and it's uh, The Kids Are All Right. The yeah. Who. I don't mind.
see uh, Australian government, the kids are all right. That's they're, right. <laughs> the bacon's not, <laughs> not uh, destroying them. Okay, it's coming up about uh, 29 minutes to midday. You're listening to News from the Drug War Front uh, with Marion and Jeff in Studio One of 2XX FM 98.3 People Powered Radio. Absolutely. We and love we've it. got a piece which talks about uh, talking drugs. It's a UK organisation uh, release Drugs, the Law and Human Rights Harm Reduction. Uh, website update May 2023. Talkingdrugs.org is an online platform providing uh, unique news and analysis on drug policy, harm reduction and related issues around the world. April flew by an intense demonstration of global harm reduction solidarity and a very visceral display of the deadliest laws on the planet playing out in real time across community, community networks. Recent UK, UK YouGov polling found that only 6% think that the authorities in Britain are winning the, quote, war on drugs, defined as combined efforts to end the supply and use of illegal drugs. We get this, 41% thinking authorities are losing that war strongly. <laughs> <laughs> and while, while the belief is widespread across all age groups in the UK, it is the older generations that believe the war is being lost strongly. The people who are still using drugs, I suspect, yeah, and, I guess, and alive to tell the story. And been around to see what a disaster it's That's been right. for, for decades. How Their damaging so, it yeah, is. Yeah, it hasn't been a success. Their solution, however, is to double down on the same strategy used for the past 50 years. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's a shame. I was hoping they might I have seen the light. I don't think they haven't been discussing it publicly, I suspect, Jeffrey, because you've got to be creative and think laterally if you want to talk about harm reduction, really. Well, one of the sad things about the UK is they don't have the network member of organisations like ABLE have with no, Karma and, and ACT and Europe, you know. And the venues or the service delivery. No, very it, conservative government. Yep. It's, yeah, and the Tories are just whatever they've had, um, which was some the British model of um, heroin prescription back in the day was That's very right, successful. It was long gone. Internationally, the harm reduction community gathered at the Harm Reduction International Twenty Three Conference, April sixteen to nineteen in Melbourne, that Australia. You were at. I was at. Yep. A festival of uh, technological advancements, abolitionist thought and, and building solidarity across the world. It was a momentous moment for a global group that had not gathered since the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the writer says, it was my first harm reduction conference, which came as a welcome change from the typical circuit of public health events. Here, we didn't have to argue that people who use drugs should be included in decision making. It was how this had worked and could be improved. We didn't have to argue for safe supply. It was how we could implement it in more countries. And we didn't have to defend the value of our lives. We could celebrate them and remember those who we've lost. Yes. Thank you to the whole Harm Reduction International team for putting it together and also for Youth Rise for helping me attend the conference and to help represent the global youth uh, voice in drug policy reform. I'm already dreaming about the next one. The conference, sadly, was followed uh, tragically by the public execution of Tanga Raju Supia in Singapore for allegedly trafficking a kilo of cannabis. Yeah. Executed for... Uh, we read that last week, we, Jeffrey, yeah, that, from that's, a Singapore that's uh, right. journalist, remember? That's right. Yeah. The brutal reality of drug prohibition was laid bare, showing that no matter how much international condemnation there is, people will continue to be killed for something as banal as selling some cannabis. And uh, in, ca in Australia, we're prescribing cannabis products, yeah, as, a, as treatments for the many and varied remedies. And you can grow two plants in Indeed. your backyard. Yeah. Altered Britannia, 
Digital Friends. Cranston's Buddy Up app has been launched this month with legal support from release. The app is targeted at people who are using drugs alone who can log on to it and receive emergency messages, triggering the right medical attention, including alerting the emergency services and, where possible, administration of naloxone. For community, by community. This is a, a list of, of new services I, I'm gathering. Liberty's latest guide has been launched with releases sub, uh, chapter on drug decriminalisation. Quote holdering our own, that's the title, features the contribution, uh, contribution of nine stellar organisations across social justice and racial equity in the UK, identifying problems in society and offering solutions for today and tomorrow to begin addressing them. The report, report was a great effort to highlight how policing and social control is exercised through drug laws and drug policy changes needed to fix it. Na mandatory deaths gone. So this is part of altering Britannia. Malaysia has moved to drop the death penalty for a variety of crimes, including drug trafficking. Wow, that's, that's good a, news. That, that's good news. And we did hear that actually last year we, from the... Again, the from the author. Singapore journalists That's that right. we talked about. Kirsten Han. Yep. Great piece. It is a great thing. And, I mean, Singapore is just on the tip of Malaysia, so hopefully the uh, implication the, the word will not, might, yeah, spread. might osmotically go through the border. People can still be sentenced for life imprisonment, just not put to death. Uh, or, or just not put on death row for being involved in drug trading. Although incremental, it's great progress in a nation with repressive drug laws. Meanwhile, in Singapore, international condemnation from amnesty and individuals like Richard Branson had piled on the government to suspend the execution of Sapia for his alleged involvement in cannabis trafficking. The Singaporean Transformative Justice Collective have done a fantastic job to highlight the draconian measures around his execution. UN United on, United on Drugs, the UN Human Rights Council has just adopted the most ambitious resolution on human rights yet. It called to end racial discrimination in drug enforcement, recognised traditional uses by Indigenous people and kept harm reduction central to the right to health. Turning the coca leaf, Colombia and Bolivia will jointly ask the United Nations Commission on Narcotic Drugs to remove coca leaves from its list of prohibited substances and accept the plant's traditional uses. That's long been a plan of those countries. It has, yeah, know. since the change of government, yeah. I mean, it's a way of surviving the altitude and not it getting is. sick and... Uh, Two-phase weed. Germany has announced its much-delayed cannabis plans. Following the Spanish model, the initial phase will create, quote, cannabis social clubs, which are each limited to 500 members and are exclusive to those living in Germany. Members aged 21 or above will be able to legally obtain up to 25 grams of cannabis in a day from these clubs, up to 50 grams a month. Well, that's not too generous. Oh, it's not too bad, sorry. 25 grams and 50 grams a month, okay. For those aged 18 to 21, allowance is, is limited to 30 grams. Consuming the herb on the club's premises will be forbidden. <laughs> Deluxe days, so I've got to go home to use it. Deluxe days. On the other end of the cannabis spectrum, Luxembourg is delaying their pilot recreational project, most, most likely until the next parliamentary period, which will begin after elections in October, this October. However, a bill supporting home cultivation is likely to pass through their parliament 
hopefully bring it into action by next year. Happy drug consumption rooms, DCR News. It's been a great month for evidence of evidence for drug consumption rooms, with Lausanne in Switzerland opening a second DCR drug consumption room in the city to ensure, quote, people injecting drugs can do so in humane and clean conditions, mm-hmm. end quote. That's great. This was followed by evidence from Canada that not a single person had died at the Canadian drug consumption room since it opened a year ago, and neither has it in Sydney or in Melbourne. 20 years in Sydney yeah, 20 without years, a death. Yeah. At least 20 years in Sydney. This was followed uh, by evidence from Canada. Oh, yeah, we just said that. A new drug American drug consumption room will also open next year in Rhode Island. This is in contrast with news from San Francisco in the US where drug deaths have spiked 41% after a key outreach centre that provided health reports and naloxone was closed. Yeah, I actually posted an article on my Facebook page about how appalled I was. San Francisco is meant to be a progressive city and yet they're closing that sort of facility that was saving drug users' lives. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's shocking. Fentanyl butterflies, a beautifully nuanced piece exploring the central role that Poppy had in supporting local communities in Mexico. The arrival of fentanyl not only decimated these communities' financial subsistence, it brought brought more death and pain to both sides of the Mexican-US border. And we also spoke about that last week, about how some Americans, especially hardline Republicans, are talking about, let's send the military across yeah, the yeah, thing and yeah, yeah. blow up a few fentanyl labs and Kill sh- show those yeah. Mexicans how we Find can... Find the fentanyl labs. Oh, just show me a fentanyl lab, yeah? They just... It's somebody's kitchen, isn't it? it, it Aren't we talking about a real small-time really operation small. to create fentanyl as opposed to a lab environment? Absolutely. Just crazy. And what arrogance to think we can just cross your border with our military, no questions asked, and start blowing things up. And Oh, well, well hang on. Isn't that what Russia's doing in Ukraine? <laughs> <laughs> not even, I know, that's different. Even the Wagner group said, send us some more, more guns. ammunition. That's right. We're running out of ammunition. Okay, coming. <laughs> crazy. All right. I'm going to play a song I haven't played for ages because I couldn't find the CD again. It's one that Jason Hargraves put me on to, the Mark Lanigan band. The album's Bubblegum and the song is Methamphetamine Blues and I think <laughs> it really hits the spot when it comes to that particular drug. And Mark Lanigan band.
just to keep on rolling I don't want to leave this heaven so soon Yeah Yeah, rolling just okay, to keep on rolling I don't want to leave this heaven so yep. it's heaven so soon. Yeah, methamphetamine so blues. It's definitely scatty enough to be methamphetamine blues, isn't it? Oh, it's just... And yet the end of it is, I don't want to... Yeah, okay, so coming out of it, I'm going to leave this heaven, heaven so, so soon. soon. Yeah. Makes sense. It's uh, quite nuanced. Yeah. Look, we've got a, a warning from New South Wales Authority, a health warning after discovering contaminated opioid by Lucy Slade, 9 News, May the 6th. Health authorities have issued a warning about a contaminated opioid detected in drugs that may cause an unexpected overdose or death in New South Wales. New South Wales Health issued the warning for drugs, quote, in yellow powder form from the Central Coast, as it believes the substance could be related to a number of recent deaths that are currently under investigation. The medical director of the New South Wales Poisons Information Centre, Darren Roberts, said drugs containing a potent opioid such as eton Nitazine can cause unexpected and severe overdose or death. Nitazines can be strong or stronger than fentanyl and may be more likely to affect breathing than other opioids, he said. It's very important people recognise the signs of an opioid overdose early and know how to respond. I mean, anybody who's done the um, naloxone training through the karma will know this. Nonetheless, we'll read it out. Overdose symptoms can include pinpoint pupils, that means tiny little ones, drowsiness, loss of consciousness, slow breathing, snoring and skin turning blue or grey. That's because of loss, lack of um, circulation. New South Wales Health said naloxone is an important life-saving medication that, quote, does not require a prescription and is free to anyone at risk of op opioid overdose in New South Wales, New South Wales Health said in a statement. Quote, you won't get into trouble for seeking medical care if you feel unwell or if your friend feels unwell, do something about it. For more information, see public drug warnings published here. That's that website, I assume. Or call the New South Wales Poisons Information Centre on 13 11 26. Something really important to well, keep in mind. And we, I still exhort people to do the naloxone training or just go and get some naloxone. Have it on hand. Carry it with you. It yep. doesn't do anything but reverse the effects of opioid overdose. Exactly. And it will not put people into withdrawals. All it will do is bring them back to consciousness. Yeah. It's a no-brainer. Abs well, yep. one would think. Yeah. Look, we're not going to have time probably to get through the whole story, but it just caught my eye because I never expected that Israel would be um, anywhere near being the world's number one. No, it's pretty phenomenal, isn't it? Opioid no. consumer per capita. <laughs> but Israel has serious opioid problems, um, according to this article and a recent report published by the Taub Centre for Social Policy Studies in Israel. The report that warns that Israel is on the verge of an opioid ep epidemic based on several peer-reviewed studies indicating that in 2020, Israel led the world per capita in prescriptions for potent and addictive drugs, initially lagging behind the US and other countries that have struggled with opioid epidemics since the late 1990s. Israel has unfortunately caught up in the, in the past decade. Abuse of the drug fentanyl plays a large part in the public health predicament in which Israel now finds itself. You were saying before, like given all the stress they're under, being surrounded by people that don't like that them too them. much. Yeah, they were they were look the the country was planted there, Jeffrey. Yeah. at the end of World War Two, they're in the middle of oil producing countries who are uh, Arabs. They have in their jails people who have 
Palestinians who have yeah. not been charged with any crime. A lot of them are kids, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, the last person that died, at, well, one of the Palestinians died from um, uh, a starvation diet oh, uh, last week, I think it was. And they, so, it, you know, the whole it's a, tragic, it, yeah. And they're protected by a dome of yeah. insularity. Yeah. But they are they happy? Well, you know? judging by this, there seems to be some problems. Um, the watershed was about 10 years ago uh, because before that, doctors prescribed alternatives and there was less access to opioids. just wasn't as easy for patients to get them as it is today, said Professor Nadov Davidovich, co-author of the report and the Taub Centre's principal researcher and health policy program chair, as well as head of the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev School of Public Health. It's a mouthful. Let me take over. Yep. The Taub Centre's report suggests that although the situation is dire, it's not insurmountable. Public health and addiction experts are working with the Health Ministry on a three-year plan that takes into consideration the report's recommendation for a coordinated and integrated national program. The multiple stakeholders include government, physicians, drug companies, HMOs, patients' organisations, law enforcement and mental health and social welfare providers and I would suspect peers. The report suggests that Israel, with its nationalised health system and fully electronic patient health records, is positioned for a relatively adva relative advantage in tackling the program uh, problem compared to other countries, compared with other countries. Davidovich told the Times of Israel that the health ministry and other governmental bodies were aware of the increase in opioid use, but until about two years ago, did not realise the urgency with which it must be addressed. As in other countries, drug companies began to heavily market opioids, also called opiates, in Israel. And many physicians were quick to see them as a magic bullet for treating pain without knowing enough about the potential for abuse, dependency and addiction. What bullshit? <laughs> they have not been reading the literature. Davidovich noted that a delicate balance must be achieved. The opioid crisis must be dealt with while not ignoring the need for legitimate pain management, one of the things that must be adhered to. Quote, the solution is not that there will be no opioids at all and all pain management is horrible. On the contrary, we need to treat those with chronic pain, especially cancer, but we need to do it the right way, he said. Oh, yeah, it sort of goes, goes on a Die. I'm sorry. Overdoses may be flying under the radar with fentanyl use skyrocketing and data from the International Narcotics Control Board pointed to the highest prescription narcotics consumption in the world in 2020. So there's figures that are alarming them. According to medical sources, among the most commonly prescribed opioid brand names in Israel are Percocet, Tarjan, Actic, Oxycod and Oxycontin, all of which contain either fentanyl. I don't think that's right. No, I don't think so either. Or Unless Targan, uh, Targan and Arctic are, are new to my yeah, I don't to know. my ear anyway. So yeah. maybe they have new. But uh, I'm not aware of Oxycontin having fentanyl. But anyway, who knows no. what's in their drugs? The studies upon which the Taub Centre report relies also indicate that Israel's fentanyl use is mostly amongst young people of lower socioeconomic status who are not suffering from cancer. 
This increased use of opioids, especially fentanyl, has led to increased abuse and dependency, with dependency often developing in just a few weeks. The number of opioid poisonings has also increased, but because fewer autopsies are performed in Israel than in other countries due to religious uh, restrictions, the true extent of opioid overdose is unknown. Of course it is. In the States, one of the things that characterised the opioid epidemic most of all was the disastrous number of overdoses that reached 100,000 in 2020. We're missing the part of that uh, that part of the equation in Israel," said Professor Shauli Levran, uh, an addiction psychiatrist and co-founder of the Israel Centre on Addiction. "Quote: I did a joint study with the Health Ministry on the number of overdose-related deaths as per death certificates in Israel. It was surprisingly low," he said. "That sounds like." Um, he's on the side of the government. According to Lev Ran, the reasons for this are likely that overdoses are not diagnosed in Israel as they are in the US and that Israeli pathologists register deaths as due to respiratory depression, which was what happened in Australia, Jeffrey, yeah. in the ACT. Yes, I remember In the beginning, saying... before we had drug treatment yep. services, was which I said respiratory depression. Um, or cardiac arrest rather than drug overdose. No, that was from Lev Ran. Um, a lot of overdoses must be flying under the radar, he said. The view from the emergency room, half of that's blacked out yeah, from me, so, so I can't noble. actually read it, I'm sorry. But the combination of pills is one of the things that we need to look at. And we have a temporary antidote called naloxone that we give. Well, we know about that one. Yep. And we do advocate that people use naloxone. Well, I'm glad they're on to that. That's yeah. good. Uh, when asked why he assumes the person's taken opioids, Hayek answered that it's because, in his experience, 80% of the people that came into the emergency room are in pain. Well, he's in a medical centre, yeah? Yeah, yep. and a discharge with a prescription for an opioid. So we can assume every second or third person in Israel has opiates in their house. <laughs> if it's not you personally, then a family member or friend probably has them. They have pills dispensed by prescription. I haven't seen people coming into the ER having used opioids intravenously or by sniffing, like you see in the US. Okay, so it's mainly prescription. So uh, they're swallowing them, yeah? Yeah, yeah seems okay. that way. Without enough pain specialists amongst Israel's physicians, many people end up in the ER after having tried first or second line pain medications and asking for something stronger. Other patients are initially prescribed opioids after surgery or by a specialist to deal with an acute injury or condition. Well, that used to be a common story in a lot of countries. Yeah, that's why a lot of people yeah, got addicted to um, opioids in the first place. It was from pain management or from particularly um, bone breakages, yeah, osteopathic conditions. Yeah. And companies like Purdue saying they had new opiates that weren't um, habit-forming. Yeah. Well, <laughs> don't worry. And when aspirin, yeah, when mm. when cancelled and the big ad from, uh, yeah, don't worry about getting rid of heroin. We've got aspirin. No, I guess I think I'll kill your kidneys. Now in the last year there is more awareness, but I still think uh, there are unfortunately some physicians who are in a state of denial about the opioid crisis. Well, that's hardly surprising. Not really. That's generally the state of case. Leveran points to the system problems, systemic problems within Israel. Healthcare is playing a large part in the growth of the opioid problem. In 2015, addiction treatment was carved out of the general medical system and the mental health reform. Quote, what that means is that while the health maintenance organisation in Israel have direct responsibility for all of our physical and mental health needs, addiction treatment was excluded and that causes an abundance of problems, he says. What a surprise. 
That result has, the result has been that addiction is on a short list of disorders that fall directly under the responsibility of the health ministry with treatment provided in specific clinics. Quote, a lot of them were established in the 1970s and 80s and were known as methadone clinics. So that's an opioid maintenance service. They were geared towards IV drug users, particularly heroin users. The addiction scene has changed immensely over the past three decades, but the services almost haven't at all, Leveran said. Furthermore, the way individuals struggling with addiction are treated does not take into account the majority of them have comorbid psychiatric disorders. According to Leveran, the Welfare Ministry is responsible for their psychosocial treatment psychiatric clinic through one of the uh, HMOs for the psychiatric treatment and the health ministry for their addiction treatment. Sounds like they haven't got a clue. It does sound like it. <laughs> Comorbidity, oh, that's such a that's outdated term, out really, fashion, isn't it? Yeah. think they're a little bit in the dark about what's going on on the ground, Jeffrey. I think so. He told the Times of Israel, with his Levran again, we've, sorry, very few individuals have the ability to run among three different service providers. That's a big problem, you would think. He told the Times of Israel that he was pleased that in the late 2022, the health ministry, recognising the problem of fragmented care, launched a pilot to fund the health ministry organisations, the HMOs, for three years to develop their own addiction treatment programs. Since every Israeli must be a member of one of Israel's four HMOs, our health maintenance organisations, maybe it is, or health monitoring organisations, this would enable a person with addiction to receive coordinated care alongside any physical or mental disorders they have. We're talking about an addiction that the medical system is partially responsible for. I'll just try and wrap it up because we've only got 90 seconds. We need, need to do public education as we need to do about the dangers of smoking and the approach needs to be tailored to different segments of the population rather than a one-size-fits-all approach. We especially want to reach young Israelis of lower socioeconomic status. Um, the Torb Centre report recommends a more integrated treatment approach that provides psychosocial and mental support often needed by those more vulnerable to opioid abuse, disorders and overdose. It emphasises that the research community must step up its role in closely monitoring prescription trends and adverse outcomes to supply near real-time data to policymakers. So at least they're starting to catch up, I guess. Is the That's story. the point. But, yeah, just when I saw the headline, Marion, that yep. um, they were number one per capita. That's pretty phenomenal, isn't it? I just, yeah, I'm not sure why I was so stunned, but I was stunned. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm stunned. <laughs> yeah. I just think it's phenomenal um, because we've heard so little from there, Jeffrey. Well, we yeah? Probably no the first story we've had about drugs in it's Israel. It's all about, well, look, the bottom line is people's is people's, yeah? Yes. A quote from everywhere. the Sesame Street. Pitbulls yep. is well, not Sesame Street. Actually, is from the Muppets. Oh, okay. Muppets take Manhattan or something. Pitbulls is pitbulls. Pitbulls yeah. is pitbulls. So they do what they do. Yeah. And you can't stop them wherever they are. No, they will no do what they're going to do. Drug free. Or... It doesn't matter how much you tread on them. No, they will still do what they do. I thought the Brazil story was especially interesting. Um, very really. pleased you got that out, Jeff. Yeah, really it was good. great. All right, listeners. Hope you found something of interest.
you like sun Lays me down with my mind She runs throughout the night No need to fight Never a frown with golden brown Every time just like the last On her ship tied to the mast Two distant lands takes both my hands Never a frown with golden brown Golden brown, fine attemptress through the ages she's heading west From far away, stays for a day Never a friend